Let me read the text, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. In a few days or a week, you will receive some Christmas gifts, most likely. How will you treat those Christmas gifts? How do you treat Christmas gifts? How did you treat Christmas gifts when you were younger? Some Christmas gifts we, we value. Others we don't value too much at times. Some Christmas gifts we give a lot of focus and attention to. And we can even use them for a very long time. Other Christmas gifts, not so much. They can be neglected and, and put away in a corner or put away in a closet. Or even given off to somebody else. Maybe it's a white Christmas gift. I remember one year... I. I I think it was called Jim Stretch. I've probably gotten the name wrong. It's been 40 years or so. Do you remember that the stretchy guy? There was this almost like rubber man. I think, I think he was very tan and had blue shorts. But you could pull his legs and arms and they would go on almost forever. I don't know if they still have that. That was a great toy for about two weeks. It got my attention for about two weeks. But pretty soon... Maybe I'm a little bit like my dad. My dad would take apart my gifts. If I got a remote control car, my dad would take it apart to figure out how it worked. Well, I was wondering, how did the stretchy gym work? How do you, how do you have, like a, you have a G.I. Joe that his arms move and, and they're kind of flexible, but you can't stretch a, a G.I. Joe arm. But this one guy, you can stretch his arm, his arms. So I got a, a little knife and I cut him open. And inside of it was all this red gel. And that's that's how he could stretch. Some Christmas gifts, if we're not careful, what can we do to them? We can break them. We can abuse them. We can tear them apart. Other gifts, you might just forget about it. Because you don't really value, the, value it that much. You just set it aside. Some gifts that you get, maybe a few, you, you value. Why do you value them? Oftentimes it's because things that we need or maybe something that you're devoted to or might be a hobby. But there are some gifts that we we receive, we don't appreciate, that they don't have our devotion, they don't have our care, we don't focus on them, we don't appreciate them, and after time, what happens? We can drift away. Our, our love for that gift, somebody gave it to us, most likely out of love for us and care and compassion. But we end up not appreciating that and it just gets put on the shelf, maybe in in the back of the closet. And it reminded me of Matthew 13 where it talks about the gospel in Christ is like a treasure or it's like beautiful pearls. And people, if we're not careful... We can treat 
the gospel like it's this incredible treasure that we love and we receive it are these pearls and it's fabulous and Jesus is, is amazing. It's, you know, we first come to Christ and I, I've been saved. Hallelujah. I've been saved by the gospel. All my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven and everything is very exciting and very new and very vibrant and very thrilling. But as the days and months and years go by, the attractiveness of the gospel and of Christ not because he himself loses the beauty, but in our eyes, we appreciate how beautiful Jesus is. And if we're not careful, we can drift away from the gospel and from Christ. And it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we don't drift away from it. And the Hebrews were in a place where they had received the gift, they had received Christ, They had at least made this profession of faith in Christ, this wonderful gift of salvation that they had in Jesus. But there was a population of this church that were being tempted to forsake their profession, to forsake their calling, to begin to back away from Christ due to persecution, both religious persecution and political persecution. Some were being placed in prison, and all their goods had been taken away from them. They were becoming destitute because of their faith in Christ. And others were receiving a type of religious persecution because they had left a Judaism that had become bankrupt. It really wasn't worshiping the true Yahweh anymore. It was works-based religion, but had been even contaminated by a type of angel worship. And so there was verbal persecution and physical persecution the verbal persecution that these people at this church could have felt could have been something like, you trusted Jesus, you, you became a Christian, and now you've lost all of your belongings, and you're in prison, or your, your family's in prison, and you've lost your belongings. You should have stuck with, with Michael and Gabriel and the cherubim and the seraphim, and I've forgotten, I, I should have written, written it down, there is a, another list of angels that Second Temple Judaism had. They, I guess, invented other names of angels. The Bible doesn't say it. And it could have been that, you know, if you really would have stuck with the angel, if you would have stuck with Gabriel and Michael and not gone after Christ, then you probably wouldn't have lost all of your belongings. You became a Christian and did things go better or did things go worse? For these believers, it went worse. And so the Spirit of God is writing them and encouraging them that Jesus Christ is superior to angels. Focus on Him so you don't drift away and go to hell. Stay focused on Christ no matter what people say, no matter what the religious world says, no matter what the political world says. Stay focused on Christ. Because, chapter 1, Jesus is greater than angels... Because he's God. And then chapter 2, Jesus is greater than angels because he's like you. Because he's man. He's fully man. And we've looked at these different focus adjustments. And we've seen three of them were on the fourth one. And the fourth one is focus on Jesus. That he is fully human and he's fully human for you. And we saw first in verses 5 through 9... We saw that just briefly. And then last week, we began to look at 10 through 18. 
that it was beautifully elaborated on. That is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is fully human, fully human for you. And I mentioned that there are going to be four words to summarize this, and they each began with an S. The first one was suitable, and that was verse 10. And then we looked at verses 11 to 13, and that was siblings. Today we'll look at another S word, that Savior, and that will be verses 14 to 16. And then next week we'll look at substitute, and that will be verses 17 to 18. Suitable in verse 10 is for God God to become a man, a real person. Some of the Greek religions and even some of the Jews of that day would look at that and say, that, that would be mad. That's not something God would do. God wouldn't become a real person that could suffer and bleed. And so the Spirit of God says actually it was fitting for him to do this. And then we saw also last week, in verses 11 to 13, that Jesus looks at us, and yes, we are subjects of the King, of King Jesus. We're his sheep, but also we're his siblings. If you look at verses 11 to 13, the end of verse 11 says, she's not ashamed to call them brethren. Yes, we're sheep, we're subjects, we're saved sinners, but we're also siblings, of the king. By the grace of God. Verse 10 says, uh, verse 9, so that by the grace of God. All this is by the grace of God. This morning, then, we're going to look at Savior. Now, you won't see the word Savior in verses 14 to 16, but you do see the picture that Jesus conquered the devil and he conquered death. Jesus saves us from the devil, and he saves us from death itself. So certainly, he is our Savior. Now, I want to keep with the same theme of Christmas gifts. As we look at verses 14 through 16. For me, when I open up my gifts on Christmas, I like to take my time usually opening up the package. I open up the package, and then I take out the gift... And I like to just take my time and look at it and stare at it and take it out. And many people have half their gifts already unwrapped as I'm still on my first gift. I just like to... Everybody's ripping it apart. Mainly the reason why is I I don't want it to end. I want to enjoy having (laughs) these gifts in front of me. That's the main reason why. I want to use that idea of unwrapping this gift that we have, and really it comes in three. So there's three gifts. As we look at Jesus being Savior, we're going to look at that with the idea that we come to him as Savior, and there's three gifts that we need to unwrap. So we're going to unwrap the first one, and to unwrap the first gift, we see that Christ became a very, very, incredibly real human. And we see that in verse 14. And don't forget, the, the theme, again, is don't drift away from Jesus, but rather have this diligent, deliberate relationship and focus on Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is like you. He's a very real human. And you see in verse 14, look at verse 14, it says, Therefore, based upon the fact 
that it was suitable for God to become a man based upon the fact that he, Jesus calls you his sibling, you are his brother or sister, based upon that, also understand theologically and logically that he became your savior by being a real person. Keep looking at that verse, and maybe it's a little bit strange to you, because you see in the verse where it says, the children likewise share in flesh and blood. Now, we say that the other way around normally, right? We say blood and flesh. Here, it says flesh and blood. The idea, I believe, that's being communicated is inside and outside, externally and internally. That is, whether it's it's bone structure or muscles or blood vessels or organ or, or, or the skin. Biologically, Jesus was like you. He was fully human. And since the children have this flesh and blood, and also communicate, this also is communicating this idea of flesh and blood, since the children have this flesh and blood, Jesus also did, which communicates ideas of weakness, fragile. When you think of flesh and blood, right? You think you, you get cut, your flesh is cut, and what happens? You, you, you bleed out. Fragile, finite, mortal. That's how these terms are used throughout Scripture. And the grammar is, since the children sure this way, since they did, and people that are still born today are born flesh and blood, they can die somewhat easily, right? If you jump off of a 40-story cliff or building, what's going to happen? Probably going to die. At least get hurt. Very bad. We're, we're very mortal in one sense. Fragile people. And so the Son of God entered into our state. We, since Adam and Eve till this day, exist in a type of fragile, finite, mortal state where we can die rather easily. In one sense. What well, says here, look at verse 14, that he himself also partook of the same nature. That is, Christ saved us from our condition how? Christ saves us from our condition how? By entering into our condition. He's our Savior, not just because he saves us from death, not because he simply saves us from, ultimately, from finite fragile mortality, but he is our savior because he enters into our condition. He is going to save us even from our fragile condition because it says in verse 10 that he's bringing many sons to glory. You see that in verse 10. But it wasn't that Christ stood from afar and simply waved his hand or sent lightning bolts or sent angels in order to be our savior. But he himself entered into our own condition that we were in. And you might say, yes, but he had no sin. He never committed sin, but your sin was placed on him. He became sin for you. This is what our Lord did. This is why he is our Savior. Now, the the grammar here is very intense in verse 14, which says, he himself, likewise, also partook of the same. Almost every word in the Greek text, almost every word is emphatic. 
And if you were to maybe paraphrase this, you could paraphrase it this way. Seriously, it's really, really true. Jesus became a real person. So if you were to go up to Jesus and poke him, maybe just like poking with a needle, what would happen to that needle? The needle would dissolve because it poked God. No, Jesus would bleed. If Jesus skipped a meal, what would happen to his tummy? It would grumble. It would rumble. He would get hungry. This is what even the... There is such intensity here in the middle of verse 14. That's why it says, He himself. Even even that word likewise, even that word has an intense modifier with it. Even when it says partook, even that word has an intense Greek preposition on the front of it. Even in verse 14, after it says blood, when it says he himself likewise partook of the same, there is even a kai, K-A-I in Greek. Normally we translate that as and. and Like all your ands in the New Testament is kai. And here they left it out. So, hope I'm being clear. When you look at verse 14, when it says he himself the Greek has an extra and in there, or, or chi. But sometimes the Greek New Testament will put the word chi in there because it's broader than just and. It can even mean uh, both, also, even, but it can also be an intensifier. It can be used with the idea of uh, very. And you have that here in this verse. So what I'm saying that this verse is saying, it's underscoring, it's highlighting, it's taking somebody's face and going, Jesus really, he became really, really, really human. Really human. And always as we are human, but he never sinned. He never once sinned. Without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus became flesh and blood. He was... Born in a body that was conceived by the Spirit of God, liable to die, to death. So human, First John says this, First John chapter 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Jesus was a real physical person. In fact, theologically, we call this what? We call it the incarnation, right? Incarnation. What does that mean? Where where does that word come from, incarnation? Though it may seem maybe a little bit odd, but if you go to a store and buy some, some chili, sometimes what kind of chili do you get? Yeah. And carne, carne, the Latin in and then carn or car is in meat or in flesh. So think about that for a moment. It's not that God, it's not that the Son of God gave up being God, but Jesus Christ, God the Son, took humanness and added that to himself forever. Forever. Now he's a glorified human and God at the same time. But so he could be our Savior, 
so he could understand us to be both the great high priest and the sacrifice. He himself took on fragile, finite, mortal flesh, you know, blood vessels and muscle and and, and tissue. And we'll see later in chapter 5, again, he did not give up his deity, but he himself was willing even, when you look at chapter 5, it seems that he, he himself had to, as he was humbling himself, willingly learn the Bible as he grew up. It wasn't that, though he could, it wasn't just that Jesus Christ normally always exercised his deity. Right? And again, like last week, we, we mentioned this. Matthew chapter 4, after he's tempted by Satan and he fasts for 40 days, the angels leave. He never submits to Satan, never. Jesus is incredibly tired and weary because he's put on mortality onto himself. He's not exercising the privilege and rights of his deity, but he could, and he could just snap his fingers. He wouldn't even have to snap his fingers. He could just be, I'm well. And he could not be tired at all. But he willingly gives that up so the angels come and minister to him. Jesus could have ministered to the angels. The angels that are ministering to him, they're being kept alive by Jesus. The very molecules of the angels that minister to him, Colossians 117, he causes all things to stand together. He's causing their very molecules to be held together. But yet, because of his humble incarnation, he placed himself in a position, though without giving up his deity, he was trusting the Father. And that's even why you have in verse 13, I think, it says, Isaiah being a, in this instance, being a type of Christ, and again, I will put my trust in him. And so what I'm seeking to illustrate is this idea that he himself, likewise, also partook of the same. Came in a, came into our situation and in our condition. And though he never sinned and could not sin, he was very, 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 very human. Like you and I. In fact, don't forget Isaiah Chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot. Like a root out of parts of ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Jesus, as a human, didn't stand out. He wouldn't be going down the road and say, there's the Son of God. The only beings that did that were demons. Otherwise, people didn't know who he was unless he did a miracle. Because flesh and blood, inward and outward, he was a human. Now, how does this help you not to drift away. How does this help us not to drift away from Christ? Well, he is so much like you, he's so much like me, that believers, he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, you are mine, you're my brother, you're my sister. But he doesn't simply say that just, yes, because he loves us, because he's for that for us, But also he says that because he's entered into humanity assuming humanness just like you. And he was human from the time 
He was an embryo in the womb to where he was born. He lived his life. He died on the cross. He rose again. Now he has a glorified body. He's sitting down at the right-hand side of God. But remember, Thomas, talking about Thomas the disciple, he showed his hands. Because Thomas was still doubting and wondering, can it really be Jesus? Maybe it's a ghost, a phantom. No, Jesus is real. And even now, he's a real human. He's a glorified human, but real human. So what I'm saying is that he can help us not to drift away. And I'm saying the text says this. Because not only does he just call us, calls us siblings because I love you, but because he became like you. No angel became like you. And prophets and priests and pastors were already like you. But the one that never changes, chapter 1, the one that is Lord, the one that made all things, the one that sustains all things, and through him all things were made, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, that one has dressed himself up in humanity. But not just like a suit. Yes, a suit of humanity, but inward and outwardly. So when you have hurts and aches and pains... But even when you have disappointments, Jesus understands. Have you ever been tortured? Maybe you have. Jesus has been. Have you had your whole family, maybe except just for a few people, but all of his brothers didn't really believe he was the Messiah? He came into his own, John says, and they crucified him. So instead of drifting away from him, thinking, oh, he, God doesn't understand. He doesn't know my condition. He doesn't know my body aches and all the different things that, that, that's wrong with me and even my situation and how people abuse me and, and, and mistreat me. The reality is you have not been mistreated like Jesus was. Because his own, you, you haven't created something from nothing. Jesus created everything from nothing. And yet, people that were created in his own image, and the nation that he chose, and the disciples that he chose, walked away, were afraid, betrayed, left him, or denied him. So I think what this passage is saying to all of us is that Jesus is so human, he understands and you can go to him. That's why we have Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, with confidence, let us draw nearer to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in the time of need. Don't drift away. Directly, even now, go to the throne of grace. Because he does understand. And it's not just that he was human. Now he's human. He's God. And there's, there's great mystery here, of course. Fully God, fully man, even now. Now, by the grace of God, it's Christmas morning, and you don't just have one gift on it. The wrapping paper maybe says Savior on it, but it has your name on it. And there's another one for you. Isn't that always great on Christmas morning if you have one gift, but then you look, oh, there's another one under the tree for me. And so you grab that one and you begin to unwrap it. And it's in a box, and you, you open up the box, and then there's two gifts inside of this one. Have they ever got that? Have you got a have you ever got a present and inside the box there was two gifts? I've got that. That's incredible. And so this second gift is like that. There's two things 
that Christ has accomplished for us in his incarnation, certainly more, but this text talks about two, and that is one, he's defeated the devil's power, which is death, and he's also defeated the fear of death in our lives. Let me see this in verses 14b to 15. So we unwrap this second gift and open up the box and there's, there's two gifts in it. Wow, thank you, Lord. Merry Christmas. And this text is saying that that tyrant, the devil, his power has been defeated. And even the fear of death, being, being a slave to it, has been defeated. So first of all, let's look at this first one. And that is that Jesus became fully human to make powerless the one that has the power over death. You can see that right there in verse 14b. That through death, through Christ's death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, Diablos. Now, my first question was, Satan has the power of death? I thought that was God. I thought God had the power over death, not not Satan. Uh, Psalm 90. Psalm 90 talks about this. Verse 2, Psalm 90. You're familiar with Psalm 90. Before the mountains were born, uh, you gave birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You turn mad. Talking about God. Talking about the Lord. Verse 3 of Psalm 90. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. It's God that is in charge. God is Lord over death. Even Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples and when he was going to send them out two by two and giving them encouragements and, and warnings, gives them instructions and says this in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And in context, he's talking about God. But if that's unclear, Revelation 1, 18. Revelation 1, 18 is very clear. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys. I have the authority. I have the power. I'm Lord of death and of Hades. So scripture, really, from beginning to end, when you read it, of course, God has power over death. But then what is 14 talking about, verse 14, when it says that Christ dying renders powerless, uh, null, ineffective, reduces the power of the one that had power over death. That is the the devil. How does the, the devil have power over death? Satan doesn't have ultimate authority and power over who dies and when they die and how they die. Satan only has power over death as the instigator of sin. In Genesis chapter 2, 17, God tells Adam and Eve, if you take this fruit and eat of it, you're going to die. Don't do that. This, this one tree. Then in Genesis chapter 3, what does Satan do? He tempts Adam and Eve. They part. They eat of that fruit, and then they what? They die. Satan only has power 
over death in the sense that he tempts you to sin. And then when you sin, the wages of sin is death. That is physical, immediate death, but also final death, hell, because you sin. Satan as the tempter, causing people to sin, in that sense he has power over death. That's what this verse here is talking about. He, he tempts you, you sin, physically you're going to die, and then physically and spiritually you will go to hell forever. But when you look at this verse, verse 14 is saying, by Christ dying, which we'll talk about in verse 18 and 17, by Christ being this propitiation, being that willing substitute, appeasing the holy just wrath of God on the cross, he conquers death for a believer. And it's not the idea, some old versions said that the power of the devil would destroy it, that he might destroy him who had the power over death. It's not the idea of obliterate, but of weaken, of of making it very ineffective. Uh, Think about a shark. Have you ever been swimming and seen a shark? I was in the Florida Keys, and is it Louis Key, and I was swimming, and just a shadow, and I just turned my head, and there was this shark that was right there. It was probably 50 feet long, at least. Maybe 100 feet. No, it's probably, it probably about 8 feet. But I, I didn't get scared at all, because it was uh, it's a, not a living shark. It is a shark, but a bottom feeder. It hardly has a mouth at all. For you to be killed by that kind of shark, you'd probably have to put yourself inside the shark. <laughs> the shark is ineffective. And that's what's happened to Satan for believers. He's still Satan. It's like a lion without any teeth and any claws. For the believer. It's like a shark without any teeth. He could just gum you to death, perhaps, but you would have to place yourself inside the mouth. So don't do that. That is the picture of verse 14 of what Christ accomplished by his propitiation, which we'll see next week, and dying for all those that trust him on the cross. The power that Satan has is not, yes, Satan tempts you, you sin. Unless Christ comes back, you will die. But remember the pattern? Satan tempts you. You sin, you physically die, you go to hell. But now, it's Satan tempts you, you physically die, and you go to glory. That's what verse here it says in verse 10. Satan tempts you. You're not perfect. We're saved sinners. You still sin. But you don't go to hell. You don't go to eternal death. You have eternal life. You go to glory. Because of Christ. In that sense, this power that Satan has where he causes people to die, they sin, they go to hell. No. That's been taken away. And how was this done? The instrument that killed the power of death was itself death, but the the death of Christ. That's why John Owen wrote the book, The Death of the death of death and the death of Christ. How God defeated the Satan was doing what 
apparently Satan, but the world and religion and politics thought would be foolish. What did God do? Became a man and died. Allowed himself, even planned it out that he would be executed like a common criminal. And through that, through that metaphorical sword, that sword of death actually put to death the devil's power over you. So when you sin, it may be that Satan says to God, Satan the accuser, that person, Tom, sin! Not only should he die, he should go to hell. And Christ will say, he's mine. He'll say, she's mine. About you, he'll say, they're mine. And actually, they have my righteousness. Actually, laid to their account is that they've obeyed me like Jesus. They're clean. Clean! And so that power of death that Satan had has been diminished. It's been broken. So death is not dying for the Christian, but a brief last difficulty. It is hard. I'm not saying it's not hard. There's been times when maybe you thought you were going to die, I thought I was going to die. Those can be difficult times. But it's in light of eternity and in light of our whole life, it's a brief difficulty. We crash to the other side, and there's glory. Unexplicable, real, tangible glory forever. So that power that Satan had has been broken. Now, this also, as we said, this other gift, in this second gift, there's another gift. And that is he liberates Christ as in the death of death, by the death of Christ, he liberates us from Not the fear of death. If you look at verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 15, might free those who are through fear of death or subject to slavery all their lives. It's not simply that he frees us from the fear of death, but having a slavish fear to death. Being held captive by fear of dying. This is what we are liberated from. It's one thing to fear death, but it's another thing to... Being in bondage to it. The fact that all of us will die is undeniable. Unless Christ comes back, all of us will die. It's true. It's also true, I think, not, not entirely perhaps for all of us, but I think built in with inside of us, there is this apprehensiveness to dying, unless it's for family, people that we love. We're not, yes, I'm going to die, or for our country. And even then, in all of these things, it's not necessarily this, I, yeah, I would, and I think you would, we gladly die for somebody else. But it's not gladly die in a sense, I'm gladly going to eat an ice cream cone. Right? There's a little bit of a difference. Because there's pain and suffering that's involved with death. And that's a reality. However, what this passage is saying, look back at verse 15, Christ dying defeated the power of the devil so that death is no longer something for us that is horrible. That is the other side of death. Death itself can be horrible. You have a loved one that dies slowly, that's really hard. But the other side of that is what? Glory and beauty, and a world of perfect love and light. 
So then, verse 15, we don't have to be slaves to the fear of dying. I think everybody, even unbelievers, even an atheist, though, you know, Romans 1, 18 through 24, though they can suppress the truth, they can suppress the truth of God and ungodliness and unrighteousness, there is this, in their heart, they know there's a God. And though there is no fear of God before their eyes for their whole life, when they're there on their deathbed, right before they die, I've known many, all of a sudden they fear God. Right before they pass away, they fear God. I've told you about three or four years ago, I overdosed on B12, and so my levels were really high, and... I saw the doctors, and they said it was like I was on the front lines of a war for two weeks, and they gave me sleeping pills so I, I could get some sleep. But it was during that time, for a moment, I thought, I'm going to die. <laughs> I'm going to die. I'm, I'm going to die. So I said goodbye to my kids. I love you, kids. I, I, I might die tonight, so I love you. Love your mom. Love God. Lisa, I love you. You, you want a good wife? I'm out. <laughs> you know, I think I'm gone. We can all be at a place like that sooner or later because we know there is such a finality with death. Once you die, that's it. Brothers and sisters, those of you that aren't Christians that might, you're here this morning. Once you die, that's it. Then you meet God. That's the reality. Life is forever for everybody. Everybody, you're going to live forever, forever and forever. That's not the issue. Where are you going to live is the issue. In heaven or in hell? There is this mystery, though, that's there with this finality of death that I think all of us, to a degree, can can be afraid of. This verse here in verse 15 is saying that we're set free, free from that. We don't have to be a slave to this what's going to happen next because we know what the Bible says. We know what Christ says. We know we get to heaven not because we're so good, but we get to heaven because Christ was perfectly good. That's why we get to heaven. How do you know if you're a slave to the fear of death? If fear of dying interrupts you loving God and loving others, then you're a slave to the fear of death. If fearing death causes you not to love God as much or to love others as much, then you're a slave to death. I mean, slave to the fear of death. But because we know that Christ died for us, Christ paid the penalty of my sin, that Christ is for me, he's going to take me to glory, that gives me confidence and hope and joy, not that I have to reform my life, but his substitution for me on the cross was so perfect. It covers every sin I've ever committed. That's what it says in chapter 1, verse 3, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is, there can, and there probably should be this fear of death, so you don't jump out of an airplane without a parachute. You don't go scuba diving without a, a scuba tank. So you don't just see a bunch of sharks and 
I'm going to trust God and jump into this shark frenzy of chummy water with the sharks. Remember, Satan tempted Jesus. Since you're the son of God, and scripture says God's angels will protect the son of God, jump off the cliff! Jesus didn't do that because he was wise and trusted God. So what I'm saying is, certainly we're not to be foolish, but we should never fear death so much that we're not loving people, we're not evangelizing, we're not walking by faith, that we're always our, ah, 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 ah. There should be this loving boldness that we have in our life. Even a, a bold joy. Because what's the worst possible thing that could happen to me? I could die. I'm not going to ever commit suicide, but if I die, that's the very, very best thing that could ever, ever, ever happen to me. I love my family. I want to be with them for as long as possible. But if I was to die today, what's going to happen? I want to see Jesus. The most important person in my life is Jesus. And if I was to die today, I'm going to see him. Hallelujah. Death for a believer is not dying. It's going into the presence of God and Christ. And there are so many now of my loved ones there. (laughs) And then the longer we live, the more of our loved ones are there. But especially Jesus is there. Fear of death is one thing. Being a slave to the fear of death, not for you, not for believers. No. We're not a slave to the fear of death. We're slaves to Christ. Not to the fear of death. There's a a third gift also that we will quickly unwrap. And you can see this in verse 16. This third gift that we unwrap, you unwrap it, and the gift is this. Jesus, and this fits together with not being a slave to the fear of death. Jesus is committed to get you to glory. Jesus is truly focused on getting you to glory. And you can see right here at the very beginning, verse 16 says, for assuredly, for for certain, beyond any doubt, this is what Jesus is going to do. He's not going to help angels. And he says, but here, this is even, it's, it's this conjunction, contrastive is, with the force of, but rather, for certain, Jesus isn't going to be focusing on helping angels, but rather, much more, in helping those that have faith and their Savior like Abraham did. And when he says, give help, you can see that in verse 16. It's the idea, and some versions will say, reaching out. Reaching out. And perhaps, I kind of like that translation better. It's the same word. It's used throughout the New Testament. And it's used, for example, in Matthew chapter 14. Guess where? Verse 31. When Peter is walking on the water. But verse 30 says he sees the wind. And he becomes what? Frightened. And he begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. Immediately, verse 31, Matthew 14, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you little faith, why did you doubt? 
The help here is the same exact word of taking hold of, of, of seizing. It's the idea that Jesus isn't simply... Help is, is a fine translation, but I would suggest that it's a little bit more graphic than that. It's help, yes, but help in the sense of actually taking hold of you. Doing whatever needs to be done to get you to where you need to be. That's the idea of this word, help. That Jesus, Jesus will focus on you so much that what he started, he's going to finish. If he saves you, then he's going to be sure that you stay saved. Back up to verse 10. If he saves you for glory, then he's going to get you to glory. That's the idea of verse 16. It's the idea, really, of the end of verse 18. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Jesus became fully human, so he could die on the cross, pay the price of your sin, but also so he could not just help you when you're tempted, like you ate too much for Christmas, and maybe now you you want to lose weight, and so, Lord, help me to, to lose weight. That's not bad, but what here Jesus is saying, the Spirit of God is saying about Jesus, is he's here to help you to make it the glory. To say no to sin and no to devil and no to the temptation and no to drifting away, but yes to him and yes to staying focused on Christ. That's what verse 16 is saying. You can look at chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Because of remaining sin, remaining sin, even within the believer, can say quietly, it's not true. It's not true. The Bible's not true. Jesus isn't real. It's all make-believe. Maybe initially you say no, but it pounds you so much that you begin to get entertained by it, and slowly you begin to drift away. Verse 16 is saying that Jesus is here to help you, not simply just to kind of nudge you, but like Peter, he will take hold of you and seize you. He is with you. He was for you. He will give you all the power and strength and determination and courage that you need. He himself went to the cross for you. If he went to the cross for you, won't he do this for you? If he laid down his life for you through torture and crucifixion and death, Certainly, he'll help you out of any kind of difficult time that you're having in terms of your faith. But maybe you would say, well, that's the issue. I don't have a lot of faith. What well, it says here at the end of verse 16, he gives help to descendants of Abraham. That is, those that have, it's the idea of those that have faith like Abraham. Did, did Abraham have perfect faith? We studied Abraham. Did he have perfect faith? No. The father of faith didn't have perfect faith. But he did believe God and God's promises. What about Peter? The, the word that's used here for help is the same word that's used about Jesus taking hold of Peter when Peter was sinking down into the water. Why did Jesus say Peter was sinking into the water? You of what? Now, we, you little faith. Did, did Jesus look at Peter and say, Sink, baby! Just go down to the bottom. You didn't believe on me. You you learn your lesson. You're going down. Is that what Jesus said to Peter? You get such small faith. Go down. You swim back to the boat. 
That's what I would have done, probably. But that's not what Jesus does. Peter, who doesn't have large... The apostle Peter doesn't have giant faith. He's sinking. And what does Jesus do? Reaches out and helps him. So maybe you say, Tom, but I don't have the faith. Peter didn't have the faith, and Jesus helped him. Even if you don't have the faith, even if you just have a little bit of faith, that little bit of faith and Jesus, Jesus himself is gigantic to save. And he will save you, and he will take hold of you, and he will carry you all the way to glory as you trust him and focus on him. What I need is a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. What America needs, our country, is a Savior. And with, with due respect, what our office does, what our country does not need is a superhero. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. We don't need a superhero for a president our superhero trading cards for a president. What we need is to bow our needs, our knees, both people and all presidents, before Jesus Christ. And I'm saying this because there can be this attitude at times that a political system can be our savior. No political system can be your savior. What America needs, what you and I need, most of all, is to bow our knees in repentance, just as the, the, the instrumental song before I came out to preach. We need to bow our needs, knees before the Lord and worship the Messiah, to worship Jesus. That's why these verses here are pointing out that it, it's not an angel. It's not a super-powered being. That's why I'm talking about a superhero. There's not some kind of special being or special person that's going to save you except for one. And that's Jesus Christ. Who is fully God, but also fully human. Focus on Him. And I think many times in our life, our marriages, our churches, our families, we can become so focused on so many other things or people that we end up having many problems. There always are going to be problems, but we can escape being enslaved to those problems by focusing on our Savior, who is both fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ. Is there a better gift than Emmanuel, God with us? I, I don't think so. I, I think the best gift that we've ever given, ever been given is Romans 6.23, but the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. My prayer is that the Lord would give you a great Christmas, the, the very best Merry Christmas you've ever, ever had. And that's when you focus on Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that our Savior, thank you for conquering death and the power of death and conquering that slavish fear that we can all have with death, Lord. Not just this Christmas, but every day of our lives, may we be focusing on you, 
May we not look toward an angel or any man or any organization or any political party to save us, Lord. May we look at Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Savior, the King, to be the one to save us, Lord, from all evil. We give you praise and we give you glory for Christ's sake. Amen.